2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like stockings, mince pies and logs.
3: Do you know, I have a Neolithic uh, mince pie story for you, Sam, in a little bit, but we could also do toys, joys and ploys, or we could do, a slight change here, cake Snowflakes and awake. In other words, you are totally (laughs) unable to fall asleep at Christmas. However, that is to monstrously digress, which we don't want to do when we're in such festive moves because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam Willis? Who knew that the history of cliques is in fact all about factions at the court of Henry VIII, the rise and fall of Anne Boleyn? It's about the cabal ministry of Charles II. It's about the magic circle, including a magic teapot that will produce any beverage that you like. It's also all about 20th century US pop culture and high schools. It's about conspiracy theories and the French Revolution. Who knew also, Sam Willis, that the history of the bottom, yes, the bottom does have a history, (laughs) is in fact all about fashion and femininity, masculinity and political protest, cycling technology, the Reformation political protest, and the invention of comfort.
2: (laughs) Did you know that? Of course you did. I did, but I've forgotten it all. It's really refreshing and nice to hear. Um, The bottom, ladies and gentlemen, is one of our most downloaded episodes. So do make sure you check it out. It's super fun. Yeah, as is cats, James. So uh, everyone, typical internet stuff, bottoms and cats, apparently is what you guys all like. Um, Let me explain who my co-presenter is. Let me say, if history was a present... Not the present, but a present. Uh, This man would be the Elf of Christmas, wrapping it carefully, so very carefully, to give to another, with all of the joy, generosity and openness of spirit of a Christmas offering. He's the wise man of Christmas himself, Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History. At Plymouth University, it's James Daybell. Hello, James.
3: Hello, Sam. And you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot these episodes? Well, let's just say that if he were a Christmas-related historian, he'd only be the ghost of Christmas past and present, St Nicholas and Frosty the Snowman, all wrapped up into one big bundle of festive historical cheer. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, your
2: friend and mine, Dr Sam Willis. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much. And hello, everyone. Um, we, we're we're always very excited this time of year. And um, this is a general... Um, A general episode introducing you to the wonderful historical themes of Christmas. Do please go back and um, check out our previous historical episodes. Uh, James and I do get overexcited this time of year and usually record an enormous amount of episodes uh, specifically dedicated to themes and crazy unexpected subjects associated with Christmas. Uh, So do check those out. Today we're going to be talking about um, all sorts of things but more of just a a general introduction to to Christmas and how you can think about it. Uh, James, what inspired inspired you uh, for this episode. Oh, okay. I
3: was inspired by all sorts of things. I was inspired by book hunting, as so I'm going to talk mm. a little bit about book hunting, but I wanted to start with a recipe for Neolithic mince pies. And as you said, Sam, we have been doing these episodes for probably five years now. And I was looking at our back catalogue last year, and I think we recorded almost a dozen little mini episodes <laughs> on Christmas, on Christmas <laughs> with different sort of Christmas and wintry themes. And oh, increasingly, it is difficult to actually think what we haven't done. But today, as I woke up thinking, what am I going to talk about in the podcast today? Having done some some research, of course. But I read in The Guardian a fascinating article um, by Stephen Morris on Neolithic rock cakes. And the clever people at Stonehenge have done some digging around. The archaeologists have found evidence of collecting and cooking hazelnuts, sloes, and crab apples, along with other fruits and remnants of charred plant materials. They've discovered this at Durrington Walls, which is a a settlement near Stonehenge in about 2500 BC, which is supposed to be where the builders um, lived. And they have made an enormous historical leap at English heritage and argued that, in fact, because it's this time of year, maybe... What these engineers were eating was a Neolithic mince pie (laughs) in fact they were possibly baked using a flat stone or a ceramic pot heated in in a fire Um, and they've they've done all sorts of things saying actually at this time of year in midwinter feasting was really important to builders of Stonehenge and I'm quoting here and we have evidence which tells us they that they had access to nutritious food and nuts and that they may even have made and cooked the recipes it's a it's sort of a far a far-fetched idea Dear, but I love it and they even supply a recipe so if you want to know how to make your Neolithic inspired mince pies for six people uh, follow this recipe for the pastry you need two handfuls of Emma flour that's e-m-m-e-r you need half a handful of hazelnut flour, a knob of lard, which you can swap with vegan lard or some kind of vegetarian uh, product if you're if you're v- vegetarian. You then need to add a few drops of water. And for the filling, four crab apples or small sour apples, a few blackberries, some sloes, pureed rose hips, about a spoonful, and then a spoonful of honey. Plus, you need a handful of berries, crushed hazelnuts, and for decoration, linseeds and a drizzle of honey for the tops. Um, I won't go into the uh, cooking method, uh, much as I would love to, uh, because I'm a real foodie, as you might have gathered throughout these episodes. Uh, But if you want to check that out, check it out on The Guardian online, uh, the Daybell uh, morning read, uh, Wednesday, the 1st of December, 2021. A little article by Stephen Morris entitled, Rock Cakes? Stonehenge Builders May Have Enjoyed Mince Pies. There is internet (laughs)
2: fodder for you. Clickbait if ever I saw it. Very good. And um, I'm I'm, I'm pleased you were like a trout rising to that fly. Um, (laughs) I'm just looking back at some of the others. Uh, Our Christmas themes are wonderfully... We've done one on carrots, uh, riots, Hmm. lucky finds, cannibalism, spite and obscenity. All, believe it or not, the most wonderful Christmas-themed histories of the unexpected episodes you can go back and check out. Um, I, I thought, James, about the things that make you feel Christmassy and um, how you could explore that in a historical way. I, so primarily I was thinking about feeling Christmassy and kind of what that meant in the history of emotions and how you might think about, um, I don't know, the history, you'll be better at this than me, but the history of generosity or charity or care, love... Um, also, that sadness and depression associated with Christmas. A lot of people feel very lonely and left out. Um, and actually, we're doing, we're recording an episode on the history of donkeys. It's our, our first major Christmas one we're doing uh, next. Uh, recording it after this, I'll be talking a little bit about loneliness and depression and the history of donkeys. Um, so I just thought, James, we'd have a think about how you'd actually get at things like that in, in the historical record. So questions of, like, you know, let's take generosity and charity. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Oh, God,
2: you throw me that as a curveball. Sam Willis
0: I wasn't expecting that
3: generosity (laughs) and thought I mean you could do that through charitable giving so the history of charities I think would be a really good place I remember hearing a superb lecture uh, by an academic a few years ago connecting Victorian charitable giving to uh, Christmas Carol Charles Dickens Christmas Carol which is sort of you know part and part sort of is the background Julie Marie Strange uh, from who was at Manchester and I think has moved moved to Durham or somewhere like that. Um, but brilliant historian, you should follow all her stuff. Uh, but she gave a fascinating talk about that. I think you could get it get to it through account books, household account yeah. books, and and giving. Uh, I think you could have a look at charitable funding during this period. If you look at ego documents, you could have a look at it from from that diaries and people recording about them themselves I think I remember us a few years ago talking about Queen Victoria's Christmas at the palace so I think you could get at it you could get at it that way
2: Um, yeah um, really good thinking and also with things like institutions like the church and, and charities is they're particularly good at record keeping so for historians to look at it you can see often not not only what was um what what, what aid was given, but the the financial uh, quantities of it, you know, the the value of it. And also, when you've got something like charity here or carers in particular, you've got two people involved, not well, more than two people, often, uh, you know, an entire business doing the caring for one person who is being cared for. But it also, that therefore allows you to have um, so many angles into that experience, whether it's uh, letters or personal diaries or day to day descriptions of what the job entailed by the carers um, also all of the bureaucracy associated with the business of the caring and also the person being cared for and all of their correspondence um, I remember when my uh my grandfather died and he was in a in a home and you know we cleared out uh, his room after after he'd passed and there was so much material there um, from from uh, my generation my my, my kids' generations so or his grandkids uh, and also his own um his own generation. There was a a, a large amount of correspondence from, um, it's a correspondence that had re-begun. So when he'd been friends with people in maybe his age is about 40 or 50, um, and then, when they were elder and they found themselves invalided or, uh, you know, one way lonely, often um, they started writing again to each other to to kind of reconnect, which I thought was fascinating. So it's a, a kind of a, a blossoming of of previous relationships. Um, so anyway, there are so, um, just a little thought, James. Yes, I think we've um, something
3: done some has good just stuff there. something has just cropped cropped up in my mind. One of oh, the yeah. things that you could do. I don't know how on earth you'd measure it, but one of the interesting things to do would be to measure the people who are invited to christmas lunch and i think That's that great. that would get you thinking about bonds between between families meeting up but also not just about the nuclear family meeting but the extended family and also who are the other kinds of guests that you invite so people who are on their own who aren't necessarily family members who you you invite into your home to celebrate Christmas um, because they have nowhere else to go another thing would be the kinds of people who help out at soup kitchens uh, during during Christmas as well I think that would be a really good way of, of looking at that but I think what you do there wouldn't be one main archive for that you'd have to look through a whole sort of series of different sources and so you'd piece it together and it would be very very time consuming but I want to take us in, a, in an enti- entirely different direction which is about book shopping. And one of my favourite traditions at Christmas is I gather together a big pile of Christmas books and I read the same books again year and year after year. And I've added a few new ones this year, including Nancy Mitford's Christmas Pudding, which I'm really looking forward to when I'm reading with my book group, uh, David Sedaris's The Santaland Diaries, and also a couple of foodie ones. So I've got River Cottage Christmas, Nigel Slater's Christmas Chronicles, and John Baxter's A Paris Christmas, which is an extraordinary book where he's a, he marries a a French woman and then and then is entrusted to make one of their most important feasts of the year which is Christmas Uh, so uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that but one of my favourite books to read and I read this religiously every year and I listen to it on tape as well is or now on mp3 uh, on download um, is Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol and I'm normally very low church in the kinds of things that I, in in the sort of provenance of books, very, obviously very erudite and highbrow in, in my, my reading, but very low church in how in what things, the, the covers that they come in. But one of the things that I would really like to own is a first edition of Christmas Carol. And this led to me doing some searches on the interweb, which led to the following entry uh, with the bookseller Peter Harrington, uh, based in London, and I was struck by the little uh, manuscript inscription on the title page, uh, and it was uh, it was signed to Agnes Sarah Lawrence from her affectionate friend Charles Dickens, twenty second of November, eighteen fifty two, and this is a first authorized collected edition. Presentation copy uh, inscribed by the author uh, on the inserted blank facing frontispiece. So those of you who know your book technology, this is basically on the, the frontispiece opposite where the sort of main uh, title page is. And this woman, uh, Agnes Sarah Lawrence, was born uh, circa 18. 18- 35 um she was young at the time of this this inscription so in her in her teens she was the daughter of one john towers lawrence of balsall heath near birmingham and apparently dickens had been corresponding with her father in february that year about bringing a group of amateur players to birmingham and all of these notes are on the 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 notes uh at um at the bookseller at Peter Harrington. So this is where I'm getting all of this information from. So Dickens is thinking of bringing a group of amateur players to Birmingham. And then the next, the, the following Christmas, Dickens goes to Birmingham and gives a three-and-a-half-hour reading of the Christmas Carol. And this is one of the ways in which he made his money was by touring around and giving these very sort of famous readings of his work, much like a, a sort of yeah, a book tour nowadays. And what you have is essentially a very uh, elaborate, lavish test text that's been that's been um, produced here, that he then he then signs uh and and that um that is then given to this person. Now, once she's received it, the copy then later goes into the library of a great uh American collector, uh Carrie Estelle uh Doheny. Uh, who lived between eighteen seventy five to nineteen fifty eight and there's a beautiful sort of book label in the front from her library and she is one of the represents one of the most important uh american collectors uh of of the period and when she died, there were about four thousand rare books and first editions in her collection so it was an incredible sort of source and then from there uh this then Got into uh, the hands of uh, of these book dealers, and it's a tiny little book. So it's a it's an octavo, which basically means that it's been if you think of a no- normal piece of paper, uh, it's been sort of folded into into eight and then cut. And it, it measures eighteen centimeters or one hundred and eighty millimeters by one hundred and eighteen millime- millimeters. Uh, there's some sort of damaging on it, but do you know what you would pay uh, for this? Sam Willis, do you know what no, they are charging I... for this? Well, this is the one reason why I didn't think that I would be able to afford it. This is not a first edition. It is a later edition, but right. it, is, it is signed... £60,000. <laughs> and I did a. I did a sort of... I went on to Abe Books and I thought, you know, I, I wonder if I could find one that was slightly cheaper. Abe Books, if you haven't got Abe Books in your life, you go and find it immediately. Abebooks.co.uk I did a little search for Charles Dickens and a Christmas Carol and I came up with some first editions. There's one, a- 1843, which is... Um, which fifty-seven thousand uh, pounds? There was another thirty thousand pounds, slightly slightly more affordable, but coming from the coming from the US, forty-four pounds shipping. I think if I had a thirty thousand pound book uh, coming to me across the Atlantic, uh, I'd want <laughs> I'd want security coming with it, and not a, a forty-four pound free or free shipping. Uh, there's another one. Um, there's another one about twenty-seven and a half thousand pounds, thirty-four thousand pounds, twenty-six thousand pounds. You get the you get the sense of this, and this got me thinking about why are these books so expensive? And it's actually if you look at the publication history of Dickens' is Christmas Carol, it sells out extremely quickly. There aren't that many that are produced, it sells out quickly, and that means that they're relatively rare, and so they can command great value. And obviously, if it also has the author's signature, you know, it makes it even more valuable. So it was first published on the 19th of December, 1843, and get this, the first edition had been sold out by Christmas Eve. And by the end of 1844 over 13 editions had been subsequently released. There was also a pirated copy um, that was made which uh, in January 1844 and Dickens basically went through the roof at this, took them to court, the firm went bankrupt and Dickens was left with having to pay the £700 worth of costs. In some ways the publication of christmas carol was something that he needed to do financially because his previous um his previous novel that was being serialized wasn't doing quite as well um he goes on to write several other uh, christmas stories as 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 everyone knows um and in 1849 he begins to take it on tour as i said already and he undertook 127 performances of it in a sort of roughly 20 year period until 1870 uh in the year of his death and as you all know it has had an incredible um reception ever since it's never been out of print translated into many different languages it's been adapted into film stage opera all sorts of things there's uh, mickey's christmas carol there's the muppet christmas carol any number of of any number of uh of Films of, based on Scrooge. So there we are, Sam. That was what got me sort of thinking all Christmassy.
2: No, yeah, very good. Um, and I, I love that. The, the, certainly the, the rare books of it. And, um, and I like the sense of everyone going crazy for Dickens um, back when it was published and it's being sold out before Christmas day that sounds like a marketing a marketing ploy to me but whether or not it was uh, they claimed it was we should try and get so, we, should, we should try and get their people Sam <laughs> <laughs> we should we should um, uh, so markets for me I wanted to talk about markets because in our family everyone gets very excited when the Christmas market comes on and that means I have to every time I walk past it for both of my kids and it gets ridiculously expensive because as soon as I've bought them a, a bag of churros covered in sugar I of course have to buy myself some cider uh, <laughs> and um, it, it gets completely insane the amount of money that I actually spend walking I live right in the middle of town so um, we're constantly walking past the Christmas market so um, kids enormously excited for it and I just had a little think about markets because there are various ways that markets are relevant to Christmas not only because um, because of the time. I think it's really interesting with the it's a it's all kind of coming together and sharing a lovely, a lovely atmosphere, lovely vibe going on. So the one in Exeter is in the, the big area just outside the open area just outside the cathedral. And a couple of points to make here is that um it's a temporary one, it's just for a few weeks in Christmas, and it's hugely popular down here. Um, but around the world of course there are markets not just christmas markets but there are markets which are equally as as popular but they're permanent and um i think it's a bit mad that you you could have a you could clearly demonstrate that something's a good idea and it works really well but they're not do it the rest of the year um and it made me think about the wonderful markets i've been to around the world and and also the the kind of the geography of it's really interesting having it in the shadow of exeter cathedral which is now a large cleared area as uh, the kind of the cathedral greens that you'll see all over the country, whether it's Salisbury or York or I don't know the Abbey in St Albans, um, always a big open space because it's been cleared. But of course, you know, back in the Middle Ages, it wouldn't have been like that at all. It would have been, um, you know, pretty much crammed with humanity and the sense of of there being temporary or pop up shops. Um, was was very much the norm. So every time you go to a Christmas market and you can smell all the bratwurst and the, the the mulling syrups and the mulling wines, um, it it is it is a bit like a time machine. Um, it really does kind of I think ping you back um, many years. I mean hundreds of years to a time when people really did enjoy living a life in the, in the shadow of these these magnificent medieval buildings. Now usually. Uh, my first experience of a Christmas market is in Exeter when it arrives, um, the last week of November. But this year I've been to Berlin, and now if there's one place in the world that knows how to do a Christmas market properly, it's Berlin, and I was there in mid-November. And so I got to experience a bit of the Christmas market in Berlin, and I looked into it. Um, The first Christmas market in Berlin, James, this is your period, 1530. Ooh, that's early, Sam. Isn't it? Isn't it? And um, they've got wonderful records of it, and exactly where it was held. So the original one was held in what we now know to be the the absolute centre of Berlin. So, um, uh, yeah, around Brandenburg and down south there towards the um, towards the island in the in the middle of the river. Um, and if you actually look at the history of the Christmas market in Berlin, of course it, it changes. It's fascinating. You've got these these brilliant. Tudor period, well not Tudors for them but for us, so 16th century Christmas markets. But then um, I found some wonderful descriptions of the Christmas market, everyone going back to, to having a Christmas market after the chaos of the Second World War um, again held uh, in, in the Lustgarten Um, but it was in the in the middle of ruins and there are some wonderful photographs and wonderful descriptions of people getting back together again and trying to 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 reclaim something that they knew and loved and identified with history and with stability which was the Christmas market so that was 1945 Um, subsequent years Berlin it has to change again because it's split into two so you end up with two markets you've got the West Berlin one um, which has a new situation. And it's in East Berlin, which is in the... Uh, they they maintain the original, the old location, and that, that stays until 1974. So um, I think the first point I wanted to make is that um, if you like a Christmas market like me, then you can look at the history of them. Um, it's made me want to explore the history of the Exeter Christmas market. Now, I was also down in Cornwall the other weekend, and... Um, Came across, James, one of the most shocking stories I've I've heard in some time. So they're getting ready to set up the New Key Christmas market, right? They've they've got all the stall holders ready, everyone's excited, so lots of, you know, young entrepreneurs and then they are making their Christmas candles or whatever it is they're gonna sell. And then before they put them up, someone stole the sheds that they were gonna use for the Christmas. Oh,
3: market. Oh, that's very un Christmassy and <laughs> uncharitable.
2: Yeah, so they've had to cancel it because they couldn't get enough um, sheds back together in time to hold it again. And I was utterly appalled. Wood is quite expensive at the moment. That probably
3: tells you something historical.
2: Yeah. Anyway, it made me think a little about theft at this time of year. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, theft is always an important part of, of, you know, giving and people leaving and forgetting things and, and things being stolen as well. And um, and also I wanted to see what the Bible had to say about that, because uh, if we're thinking about the, the religious themes. And so we can find out about, you know, the ancient Middle East. That's part of the joy of the Bible. Um, use it as a as a source which which tells you about life in the ancient Middle East. And so you can get a sense of what was going on with um, criminal punishment in relation to theft. Um, and it's quite interesting because it's to do with civil equity, right? Evening things up rather than punishment. Though, of course, in some instances, the um, the retribution kind of imposed on a crime of theft is probably it's so significant that it ends up being penal. It ends up being a punishment. Anyway, uh, to steal and slaughter an ox demands five in return. A sheep, four. A stolen animal recovered alive demands twofold restitution. So even if you get it back, you, the, the other person has to pay you too. A thief caught stealing from a depository makes twofold restitution. If he escapes, the depository must swear his innocence before God. Disputed ownership of stolen property is judged by God, either by ordeal, oracle or swearing. And the guilty one pays twofold. Now, those are the only ones I could find uh, mentioned in the Bible. Unfortunately, James, there is no mention of sheds. So I was wondering how many sheds they would have to pay back for those baddies stealing the sheds in Cornwall. What do you think? What do you reckon the going rate I think in six, the ancient Middle six, East of six, a shed is? six sheds and lose a thumb. Six sheds and lose a thumb. It's definitely got to be worse than an ox, hasn't it? Yes, so definitely. The, the ox was yeah, a Christmas shed. Um, anyway, just what I want to finish up by mentioning um you know markets in general and and how wonderful they are as as a chance to see i think they're very revealing about the real nature of a place my favorite ones i've gone to are the markets in Turpan and Khotan or hotan which are in the far west of china in xinjiang um very important southern branches of the historic the the, the silk road and um both of them, both based oases there and very multicultural, um, huge Uyghur populations. And um, one of my favorite memories of traveling there and, and researching and studying was um, going to the market in Hotan, where they make this wonderful stuff called Atlas Silk. And this is all made by Uyghurs. So Uyghurs are Muslims. Um, and even though the Chinese are trying to very much impose the fact that it is Han Chinese there, all you need to do is to rock up at the market. And I remember uh, being there and filming and being surrounded by, I don't know, a hundred Uyghur children um, and talking to their parents about the making of Atlas silk and then eating the wonderful the wonderful food that they make there. It was all uh, truly fantastic. And maybe just think about how how revealing and sort of, True, a market is. You want to get a sense of a place where there is more than one one political power around. Go to the market, and um, and you get a, get a sense of it there. So I just want to end by pointing out that you know I think markets are actually really important. I think they help you understand the history of the world. Um, thinking about big themes coming together, cultural sharing, similarities, differences of cultures—all hugely important themes uh, to enjoy uh, at Christmas. And one final point, James. Um, uh, I, I do happen to know that you have a, a, a an illness in your house where the COVID has come into your house, and I think we're all going to associate COVID, Christmas, and markets um, for for many many years to come because it was two years ago now uh, in December where where the first case of COVID was identified in in, uh, in Wuhan and so many of those early cases. Linked with the wet market, which then led to all sorts of um fairly unreasonable uh, um images of wet markets being um, shown all around the world without um any kind of editing or filtration of the different the many different types of wet markets that there are in China and, and in fact all over asia and I think that's led to a a huge growth of Sinophobia, um which we particularly saw break out in America. Uh, around around Christmas and the new year of 2019. So markets, actually, I think, um very important in history in the past and are going to be of growing importance in the future. Oh, Sam Willis, that was an extraordinary tour de force.
3: I have two two points to make. One is that markets are all about gloves uh, <laughs> because medieval mar- the sign of opening of a medieval market would be to uh, put up a glove on a long pole and it symbolised the opening of the market and when you took it down, the market was closed. Uh, a one slight uh, bar humbug about uh, extra market. I love it; it's terrific. My children get so excited, but I did pay twelve pounds for two hot chocolates the other day. It's oh. just the 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 markup on the markets is extraordinary. But that leads me into into food, and I wanted to end today with Christmas and food because for me the festive season is all about hunter gathering. It's going out and it's uh it, it's cooking and for weeks beforehand i'm planning meals i order my turkey as soon as i'm able to order my turkey and may i recommend a an easy carve uh turkey from darts farm in devon which is wonderful i saw them uh, i saw them prepare them uh, in a masterclass one year and just and never went back that it's an extraordinary feat um, crisscrossed with wonderful bacon. Anyway, we've talked about food in the past. We've talked in previous Christmas episodes about Christmas at the Tudor court. What I have for you now is a an early Tudor shopping list for Christmas. And it comes from a wonderful collection of letters that I've talked to you about before, the Lyle letters, edited by the brilliantly named Muriel St. Clair Byrne, a six-volume edition can be purchased online uh, vast vast uh, for vast sums I think I paid several hundred pounds for mine but it was well well worth it because I dip into it all the time it's about these uh, family who are based in Calais Uh, they are cousins of the king of Henry VIII and they were I think the reason that we have them is basically because Lord Lyle who's the Lord Deputy of Calais um, is accused of treason and so all of the family papers all of the family letters are confiscated and so they end up in the in the state papers and they've been beautifully edited and there are some wonderful characters. I love uh, the character Lady Lyle, who's his his, his long-suffering wife. Uh, and their their man of business, John Hussey, who, while they are in Calais, he's always off in London transacting on their behalf. And so there's a, a rich stream of correspondence that crosses the English Channel. And I have a letter in front of me, uh, dated the 19th of December, 1537, to Lady Lyle, honour Lady Lyle, from this said John Hussey. Uh, and I'll just give you a little sort of taster of it. Pleaseth it your ladyship to be advertised that with this bearer, John Scarlet, master of this hoy, whereof is owner John Lordon of London, I do send, packed in a sugar chest... The proportion of spices which Bond delivered me at my departing from Calais. The particulars with their prices I do send your ladyship here enclosed. For the freight the master must be satisfied as your ladyship shall think meet. I pray, Jesu, send the same to you in safety. The weather hath been very boisterous. And so he goes on. Um, But what's interesting, uh, he signs himself... uh, by your ladyship's own man, John Hussey, from St Catharines, the 19th of December. What's interesting is that attached to this letter, or enclosed with it, is this list of spices, all sorts of things that they're buying. It's dated uh, 1537, the 9th day of December, and it includes, uh, get this, it includes 40 pounds of sugar, of fine sugar, Uh, uh, It includes 40 pounds of middle sugar, uh, 4 pounds of cinnamon, uh, a pound of mace, uh, 4 pounds of ginger, 20 pounds of pepper, 2 pounds of dried nutmeg, 3 pounds of licorice. Um, It's also got 4 pounds of aniseed and then it's got uh, six pounds of saunders. Saunders is a kind of red sandalwood, so it's a sort of medieval spice. It's also got four pounds of isinglass. And isinglass is a gelatin formed from fish. It's then got 20 pounds of raisins, 10 pounds of dates, two pounds of prunes, uh, six pounds of clothes and a great rice apiece. Uh, as well, and it's all in a in a big chest, and then has been popped onto the ship. And the cost of this is quite extraordinary for the period. It is uh, it is um, twelve pounds and twelve shillings. Sorry, I'm, I'm translating the Roman numerals. What's extraordinary here is that what we have here is a snapshot of the spice list that would be used in a house to make all of the feast for Christmas. You can see here, you've talked earlier on, Sam, about the importance of markets. What we can see here is the importance of trade. These are often foreign fruits that are coming across, foreign spices connected to the spice road that we're seeing in the early 16th century coming across and being part and parcel of what they're, what they're talking about, of what they're looking, uh, what they're going to be cooking. Um, so, but that I from this uh, early early henrician or Henry, early shopping list from Henry VIII I've also been uh, been perusing through uh, other Christmas books that I've got including uh, Mark Forsyth's A Christmas Cornucopia The Hidden Stories Behind Our yule tried Traditions and I was looking for other things connected to uh, Christmas feasting and on page 112 he mentions a 17th century book called The Accomplished Cook, uh, which lays out very clearly uh, what you need to give your guests for Christmas dinner. And get this, Sam Willis. A collar of brawn, stewed broth of mutton marrow bones, a grand salad, a pottage of caponets, a breast of veal, a boiled partridge, a sheen of beef or sirloin roast, mince pies, a gigot of mutton with anchovy sauce, A made dish of sweetbread, a swan roast, a pasty of venison, a kid with a pudding in his belly, a steak pie, a haunch of venison roasted, a turkey roast and stuck with cloves, a made dish of chicken in puff pastry, two brant geese roasted, one larded and a custard. (laughs) <laughs> and apparently this was just the first course. And the second <laughs> included quails, six tame pigeons, three turkeys. So, you know, very, very uh, meat heavy. And what does what does Christmas dinner look like in the modern day? And I don't know whether you have um, whether you have seen Heinz's Christmas dinner, Big Soup that they have produced this year for the first time, priced £1.50. And it's supposed to have absolutely everything that you would have for a Christmas dinner in one can. And I read the other day, I haven't dared taste it yet, but I read the other day a wonderful article in The Guardian where they were going through reviewing all of the Christmassy flavoured foods. So these are all the sort of the kinds of sort of processed foods that have been flavoured to taste like Christmas. So, you know, turkey stuffing crisps and that kind of thing. Anyway, this was reviewed uh, by somebody called Stuart Heritage. Uh, Wonderful name, Stuart Heritage. It's like being John History. Um, And he, (laughs) I just wanted to read this because it made me laugh so much. This is his review. Uh, this, meanwhile, is a travesty. It is a tin soup that contains turkey, stuffing balls, potatoes, Brussels sprouts and pigs in blankets. And not to be indelicate, it looks like fresh sewage. It smells bad. I can't accurately describe the mouthfeel because I have never had to swallow contraband human organs to sell on the black market. It tastes like punishment. Heinz, you invented the precise opposite of Christmas. It is genuinely impossible to eat this nightmare without even a trace of festivity in your body. Merry Christmas to nobody. How nice is it? <laughs> how, how, mu- how, how much like Christmas dinner is it? <laughs> Zero out of five. <laughs>
2: Well, I will not be tucking into
3: uh, that big, big, big Christmas dinner soup.
2: No, 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 um, no. And this podcast is sponsored by Heinz.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it's delicious. I'm sure it's delicious.
2: Thank you all guys so much for listening. That's our little introduction to uh, Christmas and the various Christmas themes. Um, of which we could, you could rip out so many from what we've talked about today. And we're going to come back with our special focused first focused Christmas one of the year um, soon. And it's going to be on the history of donkeys. And I can't wait. Be back in touch soon. But um, please, if you want to see what we're doing, follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast.
3: And I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. We are also on Instagram and we are on Facebook, so check us out there. We also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see all the things that we've been up to and our back catalogue. And importantly, because it is almost Christmas, you can buy signed copies of our five books. Uh, which make great stocking fillers. Uh, Also, if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, uh, become a patron, head over to patreon.com where we have an account and anything that you can do to support what we're doing with history uh, would be very much appreciated. Meanwhile, uh, enjoy the run-up to Christmas, everyone.
2: Absolutely, guys. Have fun. Uh, We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Bye.